Good morning, everybody. I want to invite our children to Children's Church and thank Kathy for leading that. Got to remember her for those things. Let's open in a, in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, uh, this week we begin to hone in on that Christmas celebration. And Lord, there is the secular celebration with Santa Claus and reindeers and um, talking snowmen and uh, presents and all of those things. And then, Lord, there is the miraculous spiritual truth that we celebrate on Christmas that the church remembers. And that is the huge miracle of the incarnation that the eternal God took to himself a reasonable human nature and became man. And Lord, that's, that's an amazing thing. So I pray that we would be able to enjoy the best of what's good in the secular celebration, but Lord, that you would stir in us a deep appreciation for the religious celebration of the miracle of the incarnation. Help us to see that clearly, we pray. Father, we're grateful for your work in this world, for the things that you continue to do here. Lord, thank you so much for having the uh, hostages in Haiti all released. Um, Lord, what a mercy that they're all home before Christmas. And Lord, I pray for whatever it was you were doing by having those people held captive. Uh, Lord, you had missionaries gathered together and, and held in a, in a tight area. And Lord, we pray that um, whatever they accomplished there, whatever the things that you did in and through them would bear fruit, that maybe this gang that had kidnapped them might become believers. And we pray that your mercy might fall on them and, and you would draw them to yourself. And Lord, we just pray for the nation of Haiti. It's got such a horrible history of ups and downs and just really struggling. Uh, Lord, would you ignite a revival there and bring the truth of the gospel to light in that and Father, uh, we pray now for our nation as we face the next iteration of what this pandemic will look like uh, with the Omicron variant. Uh, Lord, it seems like that might be more mild than, uh, than even the Delta. We pray that that would be true, Lord, that you would be easing this, this pandemic into an endemic, just part of uh, the routine of the, the illnesses we get, that it wouldn't be as lethal, that it wouldn't be as, as uh, strong. It would just ebb into the background, Lord. And we ask that not because we deserve it, but because of your mercy and your grace to us. So, Lord, would you uh, visit us yet again with the mercy that we don't deserve? And Lord, we ask a similar thing now as we come to your word. Lord, we, your people, are not always as dedicated to your word, as, as faithful to your word, as devoted to what you're telling us in your word as we should be, but Lord, by your grace and your mercy, you continue to conform us to the image of Christ. And would you do that now through the preaching and the, the study of your word? Uh, Lord, would you glorify yourself, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're on the fourth Sunday of Advent, and this Sunday we said that um, this is going to be talking about the future of the earth. So we've talked about our future, we've talked about the future kingdom, and now we're going to talk about what will the earth look like when Jesus returns. So to kind of set this up, I think there's a, 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 an idea that, that we can get our head around it when we look at what's the future of the earth look like. And that's um, something that St. Augustine wrote in the 5th century. He, wrote, he was asked to write a handbook for Christian believers. And so he wrote what's called the Enchiridon. And it's just a fancy word for handbook. And so in that, he's kind of going through the Lord's Prayer and the, the Nicene Creed. And uh, one of the things he talks about is the condition of humanity. What does humanity look like throughout God's 
um, history of redemption. And he says that humanity exists in four different states. Before the fall, humanity was able to sin. After the fall, humanity is not able to not sin. When we're born again, when we become believers, we're able to not sin. And then in glorification in the end, we will not be able to sin. So that's kind of the four stages that he said. I think there's an easier way to say that, that there's too many knots that jump around in that. So before the fall, sin was a potential. After the fall, sin is inescapable. After we're born again, sin has lost its grip. And then in glory, sin is removed. And so the, we go through these four different stages. That's what it's like for us as we progress. And, and we know these are all actually pretty good definitions, right? Because sin was a potential before the fall. We know. How do we know? Because it happened. Adam and Eve sinned. It was always a potential. And then after the fall, sin is inescapable. Now, that doesn't mean people are as rotten as they can be every single time and do only horrible things. What it means is we have an inclination. We are bent towards sin. And so just a handful of scriptures to kind of uh, flesh that out a little bit. Uh, right out of Genesis, chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That, that's only chapter 6. That's not that far removed from the fall. And that's how bad it had gotten. In Romans, we hear it quite a bit, too. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Um, this is the, the, the history of who we are. Also out of uh, chapter 3, um, there is none righteous, no, not one. And, and Paul goes through this list of statements about how humanity has fallen. Uh, one that may be more familiar, Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So since the fall, the condition of humanity is we are bent towards sin. We, we head that way. But the good news is that once we're born again, once we've put our faith in Jesus Christ, sin's grip is broken. And so in the New Testament, we get these repeated admonitions to stop sinning, to avoid sin. You can stop doing this. So, for example, James 4, 7, Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee, for you, flee from you. It's possible to resist the devil to the point where he flees. We, we, can, we can do that. Um, Ephesians 4.26, be angry, but do not sin. There's a way to be angry and to be sinful, and there's a way to be angry and to not sin. So it's possible for us to do that. In John 8.34, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And then he goes on and he says, so if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. The Son has set you free from being a slave to sin. You can resist sin. And then in the end, when we get to the very end, when, when it's all over, sin is removed. We're done. Sin is, has been eradicated. In Revelation 20, we see that sin and death and hell are all cast into the lake of fire, that we're all set free. In Romans 6, Paul says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So there's this coming hope in the future where when you, you do dumb things now and you regret it, you feel horrible about it. Know that there's a day coming when we'll be set free from that. So that's those four states of humanity. Well, I'll ask a question about that. What about the rest of creation? So that's how God deals with humanity. What about the rest of creation? And typically, I think the way we think about it is at creation, it was perfect. And then at the fall, it was cursed. 
And then in the end, it's burned up and we get a new heavens and a new earth. And, and that's generally how we, he, we understand the scope of what happens to the earth. Um, creation, fall, and glory. But let's take a look at each one of these three, and then I want to come back at the end to consider the section from Romans that Rich read for us this morning, and, and we'll see how these things fit together. So uh, creation. Was the world perfect at creation? Um, I've heard it said. I've heard people say that. That is not what the Bible says. What the Bible says is that it was miog tov, which is very good. But it wasn't tamim, which is perfect. So why was the world at creation before sin had entered? Why was it very good? Why wasn't that perfect? Well, I think one of the answers is because sin was a potentiality. Sin could happen. Now, one of the things that we see at this point in, in understanding the earth, we don't get a whole bunch of information about what life on earth was like before the fall. And it can be frustrating because we would love to know more data. But we only have so much, and so that's what we're going to look at. One of the things um, that we talk about sin as a potential is Satan at some point before um, uh, Genesis chapter 3 had fallen. And, and if we understand the, the scriptures correctly, he had taken a large portion of the angels with him. They had turned and decided that they, they didn't want to worship God. That was before Adam and Eve sinned. So here we have this huge potential because we have the adversary who's ready to come. And then in Genesis 3, what we find is he comes into the world, and he comes and he lies. And so sin was a potential at this point. It, it was a possibility that it could come. Um, but it was, still, it was still very good. It was still a wonderful place to be. I would probably rather be there in the earth before the, the fall than now. I think it would have been better. Um, one of the other things that I hear sometimes said is that there was no death before the fall. Um, and that comes from Romans chapter 5, uh, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so sp sin spread to all men because all men had sinned. So the idea was that there was no death until Adam brought that in. Well, that's not what that says. <laughs> this is the frustrating part, is what Paul is focused on is not all of creation at that point. He's focused on humanity. So sin entered through one man, and sin spread to all creation? No, spread to all men. And so we don't know what was going on. Did animals die before the fall? I don't know. Did insects die? Could, could Adam have swatted a bee on his shoulder? And, and killed it. Would, was that possibly before the fall? Were there bees before the fall? It's just so frustrating because we don't know. What, what we can go with is what God has told us is before that, it was very good. It was as it should be to a certain point. But it wasn't perfect. It wasn't complete yet because sin could come in and disrupt it. So the next state that we talk about humanity is, or I mean uh, the earth is at the fall. So what happens at the fall is Satan deceived Eve that's, we get that from 1 Timothy 2.14. He came in and, and began to twist God's word and lied to her. And so she was so confused, so deceived by what he had said that she took of the, the one thing that God said, don't do in the garden, she took and did it. And then what's really alarming is it says in Genesis 3, and her husband who was with her took and eat also. So Adam is standing there watching Eve be deceived. And according to uh, 1 Timothy 2, he wasn't deceived. So clear-minded, he, he looks and he goes, didn't kill her. I'll try it. 
And so he did it without being deceived. And so that is the fall of man. That is where humanity is, has fallen into sin. Sin is no longer a possibility. It's now a reality. It is, it is the, the human condition from this point. And so what happens? How does God respond to this? Well, you know the story. He shows up in the garden, and Adam and Eve are hiding. And so he calls out to them. Now, did he not know where they were? He's God. He knows everything. He knew exactly where they were. Why was he calling out to them? He was asking them to repent. The, the only way that they could fix what they had done is to come to him in faith, and they wouldn't do it. They started blame shifting. What's going on? Adam, the woman you gave me, she did it. Eve, what's going on? The serpent, he, he confused me. And so what's God's response then to the serpent? God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. He didn't curse Adam. He didn't curse Eve. He cursed the serpent. And it's not all snakes. So one of the things I've heard people say is, Snakes walked before the fall. You can't say that. We don't know. Because when God says, cursed are you, it's a singular you. You, Satan, in the form of a serpent, you are cursed. And on your belly you will crawl. And so that, that was the first thing that he cursed. What, what else did he curse? He goes on in, in um, verse 17. And to Adam he said, because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. So he didn't curse Adam. He cursed the ground. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread till, return, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So what the curse then is, is Satan's cursed, and the earth is now cursed. It's hard. It's hard work. And, and you want an example of that? I showed up yesterday to help with planting the trees out back. I am not 20 years old anymore. I know that's hard to believe. I went out there, and, and it, the, hard, the ground was hard. There was one spot where I'm trying to dig down a little bit further to get a plant in, dug down maybe a foot, and all of a sudden there's this hard clay. And it was just murder trying to get that in there. It felt very much like this curse. Thorns and thistles. What was growing around us? Tumbleweeds. By the way, do you know what a tumbleweed actually is? It, its technical name is Russian thistle. It's an invasive species. So thorns and thistles is our ground out back producing. And it's murder to get these nice, beautiful green plants to grow out there. It just felt very much like that curse. And by the way, the, the sweat of my face, I was bushed. <laughs> I went home and took a nap for a couple of hours. And even today, I was just telling Lisa, when I stand up or sit down, I make a noise. <laughs> just muscles are not happy with this. This is the effect of the curse. It, it's, people are not cursed. The serpent is, a curse, um, is cursed. And so what Paul tells us in Romans uh, 3.20 is, uh, 3.20, in um, 8.20, he says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So there is a reason that the world is like it is. There's a reason why it is hard. And yet, this is a cursed world. And isn't it beautiful? Isn't it something? It's still, the heavens still scream the glory of God. You step outside at night, you look up at the sky, and that's yelling, God is glorious. 
There was an article, a uh, photo essay in, I think, The Atlantic this week about photos of joy and hope, which I thought was really nice. And it was these pictures from all around, these wor- all around the world, and I thought, it, there's still such beauty in this world. It, it's still, this is what God's curse is like? Now, I don't, that doesn't mean that it's always easy. There are people who starve. There, there are famines that come. There are tidal waves that take people out. There is all of this other stuff, but it's not all as horrible as it could be. So that's the current state of the world. So in creation, it was very good. Now it has been subjected to futility. What about the future? Well, at the end, um, at the very end, something pretty drastic happens. So I'm going to read this. It's a longer section. It's from uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. And listen to how Peter describes what happens at the very end. He says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, saying in their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world then existed, was deluged with water and perished. But the same word... Oh, I'm sorry, but by the same word, the heavens and the earth now exist and are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But don't overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to keep his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any of you should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day, of Lord will come, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies, actually I think a better translation is the elements, will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things th- are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be um, in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord? Because of, these, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So what Peter is explaining is there coming a day when judgment will fall on this earth and it will be consumed. It, the, the elements will be dissolved. And that word for elements is stoicheia. It means the basic principles, the ABCs, the, the, the basic kind of things. So some of the commentators were theorizing what Peter might have been thinking of is what the world was considered of, made of back in those days, earth, wind, fire, and water. So maybe that's what he was thinking is those things would all be consumed and, and boiled up. Maybe he's thinking of the subatomic particles that constitute our universe and the sub-subatomic particles that constitute those. And all of those things will be burned up and then there'll be a new heavens and a new earth. And so what do we know about the new heavens and the new earth? Frustratingly little. <laughs> we don't know. By that point in the book of Revelation, Paul has, I mean, uh, John has begun to talk in very vague terms. He doesn't give us a whole bunch of detail of what that heavens and the new earth will look like. But he does give us some great news. In, uh, in Revelation 21.1, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So he's, he's getting a glimpse. He's looking forward to that new heaven and new earth because the old one are gone. In verse 5, he says, 
And he, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the water, the spring of water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, um, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with sulfur and fire, which is the second death. So whatever this new heavens and new earth looks like, God's there. God is there perfectly, and what's not there is sin. It's all been eradicated. It's been removed. And this is what it looks like when God is in this new heavens and new earth. Uh, Revelation 21, verse 22. John says, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. So in, in the new heavens and the new earth, it doesn't say, notice he doesn't say, the sun and moon are eradicated, they're gone. It, they might be. But what he says is we don't have any need for them. Why? Because God is dwelling right in our midst. This new heavens and new earth is the union that God sought in creation, that man and, and God would be together, that he would be their light. It, it sounds beautiful to me. It sounds wonderful. So God dwells with us. He's in the midst of us. He's right there. And what, he, what John goes on to explain is the tree of life is back. Remember that from the garden. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they got kicked out of the garden. Why? Because the tree of life was there, and they might have eaten from that and lived forever in a sinful state, never to be set free. And so God kicks them out of the garden. Well, the, the tree of life is back. And by the way, we have full access to it now. There's no law in the new heavens and the earth saying don't eat from that one. We get to enjoy this. So that, that's the beauty of this new heavens and new earth. This is the beauty of where we wind up. It will be perfect. It will be complete. That will be everything that God has, has desired to do from the beginning. But what about that third state that Augustine told us about? Remember the third state that Augustine said for us is sin is resistible. We, we're not overcome by sin anymore as believers. We can fight it. The earth doesn't get one of those. The earth goes right from cursed to destroyed in new heavens and new earth. Well, I'm going to go ahead and just play my eschatological cards at this point. What I'm about to talk about is, is very much a premillennial understanding of the end. And the way we would understand that is perhaps Romans 8 that Rich read for us is not the exact same event as 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3 is the destruction of the earth and the recreation, the new heavens and the new earth, what, what uh, Rich read for us this morning in Romans 8 is it's set free from the futility, set free from the frustration. So let me go back and read that again, what, what uh, he read for us. He said, if I can find it real quick. Um, it was 8, right? had it. It's on the last page. There it is. Eight, 18. Okay. Sorry about that. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy or worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing 
for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who, subject, who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that this whole creation has been groaning together with pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Does that sound like creation is waiting to be eradicated, to be burned up, to be consumed, and then recreated as something different? It just, for, for me, it doesn't feel like that's the same event. It feels like there is something else in between these two events where, where creation is set free from the curse, where something else happens. And so what we would understand this to be is when Jesus returns and he reigns on this earth, it's possible that he will end the curse on the ground, that we will see Jesus reigning personally, perfectly, absolutely over the earth, that his saints will be there reigning and ruling with him. And one of the complaints about that idea is, well, won't there be unbelievers on the earth at that time too? Won't they die? Won't there be judgment for that? Yes, there will be. And the reason that we don't have a problem with that is because it's happened before. Remember at Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew, the graves were opened and people rose from the dead and walked around the city. So it is entirely possible to have resurrected saints wandering around on an earth with people who are not resurrected. That, that's not unbelievable. It's, it's happened before. We have precedent for that. But also, there's, there's some other things that are going on here. There's, there's this idea that the world hits this kind of intermediate state, and it comes from Isaiah chapter 65. So let me read another little bit long uh, section for you, and then I'll point out a couple of things in it. Isaiah 65, beginning in verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. I will rejoice in Jerusalem, be glad in my people. No more, no more shall be heard in, this, uh, in it the sound of weeping and the crying of distress. No more shall there be in it an infinite, infant, I almost said infinite, an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not fill out his days. For the young man shall die at a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred year old, uh, and a sinner a uh, hundred years old shall be accursed. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For the days of the tree shall be, uh, for, for like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be. And my chosen shall live, shall long enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So the, th the thing that, he, that um, Isaiah is seeing here is the earth is significantly different. There's still death. 
he says in verse 20, the young man shall die at 100 years old. So if somebody lives to be 100, you go, oh, man, that's, that's, too, that's tragic. They lived only 100. I hope to make 100. That would be nice. That's not the way it is right now. And he says, they shall not labor in vain or bear children for calamity, and, and they shall bear f- the, the, the veins will bear fruit. It sounds like, in this picture, the earth has been set free from futility. And yet, death is still part of creation. It's still there. It hasn't been eradicated like we see in the new heavens and the new earth. And so that's, that's the idea that this could be the reign of Christ. This could be when Jesus comes back and reigns that the earth will not just be ruled perfectly, but will be liberated in some marvelous ways, that it will be significantly different and yet not fully, not, not, not complete, not to the end yet. And we sang this very thing this morning, by the way. I don't know if you noticed that. We sang joy to the world, and, and one of the verses goes, no more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings fl- flow far as the curse is found. The thorns, that's, that's right out of Genesis 3. That, that's part of the curse. So the way this lines up in a premillennial understanding is there is the first resurrection. Jesus returns to the earth, and with him come the saints who have died in faith. And at that moment, we are caught up with them. We are changed in the twinkling of an eye. We, are, we meet them in the sky and, and escort our great king to the earth where he begins to reign. And we reign with him. And that goes on for a very long time. Revelation calls it a thousand years. I don't take that personally. I don't personally. I don't take that to be a literal a thousand years. It means an appropriately full, long period of time. That's what we're talking about with this earth being set free. So that is the end. Then at the end of that, then the new heavens and the new earth. And that's the idea. So here's the big question. So what? What is? Why does this matter if? There is this time between Jesus' return and, and the destruction of everything. Why does it matter? What, what does it do for us? Well, f- one thing I think of is it means our work on this earth is not unimportant. What we do here actually has a lingering effect. It will be there when Jesus returns. It, it's, it's something that happens now. It's something that we're engaged with. So I was talking with Lisa about this, and she says she can look at Lancaster and not see a city that's broken and and falling apart, but see it in light of what it could be in the future. Just like when you meet a saint. You meet somebody and you go, man, they're not perfect, but God's really working on them. And they're growing and they're becoming more Christ-like. You can look to what they will be, what they they hope to be, and and help them along. You want to disciple them. You want to encourage them in the scriptures. You want to encourage them in the things of God. The same thing when we look at our city. Because we don't have to go, well, you know, it's all going to burn anyway, so who cares? I'm not polishing the brass on the Titanic. Why bother? It, it does matter. <laughs> so going out back and digging holes and putting trees in it, <laughs> it matters. It, it lasts. It endures. It will be there when Christ returns. Well, I hope so anyway. It might <laughs> hopefully not die before then. But um, it doesn't get burned up, and that's it. So it, it helps us to feel that our work here it, it matters. It has an enduring value to it. It's something that will last beyond that. And the other thing I think it helps us, the other so what question is to recognize that Jesus' redemption is not just some spiritual thing that we can't see. He's come to redeem everything, to make everything right. He's, he says in, in Revelation, behold, I make all things new. So in Colossians 1, for example, it says, 
And for in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. His redemption is not just a spiritual event. It is a global event. It is huge. He's going to redeem this broken and this fallen world. He's going to bring it together. And all the frustration that you feel now, all the times when you wish, man, I wish this didn't work this way. My car broke or my cat died or whatever it is, all those frustrating things, you can know that there's a day coming when those frustrations will be eased. The, the curse will be lifted. And it will feel right. And that's not because we're just hopefully thinking that way and you know, if we cross our fingers. It's because Jesus himself is going to come and make it right. So we're, we're, we're evangelizing. We're trying to convert people. We're trying to help people to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We want them to become believers. And it's not just a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing as well. The earth is part of this equation. Now, don't misread me and think that means we got to go full, you know, Greenpeace and, and protect the baby whales or something. We do have a responsibility. Remember back at the beginning, what was God's commission to Adam and Eve? You, you're, they're gonna cr we're going to create them in our image, and they will have dominion over the earth. Now, dominion doesn't mean don't touch a thing. You know, um, you go to my grandmother's house when I was a little kid. It was not allowed in the living room. And the living room had plastic runners, see-through plastic runners, and the couch had plastic lining on it. It was terrible, uncomfortable to sit on, especially in summer, but don't you touch that. I did not have dominion over the living room at my grandma's house. I did, however, have dominion over the backyard. <laughs> and so in the, in the sandbox out back, I was king. And if you've ever seen that Calvin and Hobbes cartoon where he's making you know, monsters and stuff, that was me back there. So when God gave us dominion over the earth, he didn't say, don't touch a thing, don't, don't modify it, don't change it at all. The story of the Bible is it starts in a garden. Where does it end? New Jerusalem. It ends in a city. So we are to have dominion over this earth, and we are to take good care of it. We aren't supposed to just consume it and throw it away. That's that attitude if it, you know, who cares? It's going to burn anyhow. So I can burn it now, I guess. So this is the picture of Jesus' reign. It's much more than just over spiritual matters. It's huge. It is gigantic. We just can't imagine how big this is. So the promise of this new earth is it's cursed now, it gets better, and then it's perfect. And so that's the hope that we have in Jesus. That's why we're looking forward to the Advent, because when it talks about in Romans 8 about um, us being revealed as children of God, our adoption becomes full. We are issued, uh, ushered into God's house at that point. The, the, the certificate of adoption is signed. And creation itself then sighs relief. <laughs> Finally. And it gets a break. And then we get to reign over it with him. It's, it's going to be glorious. So that's the, the future for our earth. That's the future that we're anticipating for where this is going to go when Jesus returns. It's not just burned up and gone. Um, I think it's, it's much more glorious to see it as redeemed. Even the earth gets redeemed. That's the power of our Savior. With that, let's pray. Gracious Lord, um, we can't imagine, uh, not, not with great detail and specificity, what the earth looked like before the fall. It must have been beautiful. You called it very good. And Lord, we can't imagine, we can't even begin to taste what the new heavens and the new earth will look like. 
what lies before us is so grand and so glorious. Lord, you will be here with us. And yet, Lord, we have this hope of this time in between when Jesus returns and this earth is set free. And so, Lord, I pray that you would empower our mission to save not just souls, but to make disciples of all the nations. And, Lord, that we will see that the, the small things that we do in this earth have lasting effect. Lord, that there will be a point in the future where they will be set free from the frustration that, that inhabits them now. And that we will one day glorify you on this earth, in this building, with those trees out back. And remember your goodness to us. Lord, accomplish the great things we pray in Christ's name. Amen.